the Museum of South Texas History preserves and presents the borderline heritage of South Texas and Northeastern Mexico by telling the stories from the Rio Grande. Welcome to Stories from the Rio Grande. I'm your host, Pamela Morales, the communications officer for the Museum of South Texas History. I'd like to apologize for the delay, but it's been busy here at the museum. We've had several major events and special programming, but we're back to the podcasting world. In this episode, we're going to Cameron County, where Reba Cardenas McNair lives. She is the daughter of Renato and Mary Rose Cardenas, both whom were involved in Brownsville politics. Both of her parents left a remarkable impression on her and the city of Brownsville. Let's take a listen. Hello and welcome to Stories from the Rio Grande. I'm Pamela Morales and I'm here with Reba from Brownsville. So hi, Reba. Hi, Pamela. How are you? I'm doing well. Well, I'm very excited about this interview. Could you tell us your full name? My full name is Reba Cardenas McNair. What exactly is your profession now? What what or what have I you done? I am a real estate developer. Uh, I run a family-owned company that builds residential subdivisions in Cameron County. And has this always been your profession? No, no. I I started out as a newspaper reporter at the Corpus Christi Caller. Then I went to work in impress relations for Texas Instruments. And after that, I married and moved to Brownsville and started working from the family-owned business, this family-owned business. And what's the name of the family-owned business? I run Cardenas Development Company, Inc., which is the land development company. My father and mother have owned car dealerships. My father has now passed away, but my mother owns Cardenas Motors in Brownsville and Cardenas Metroplex Mercedes-Benz in Harlingen and Cardenas Ford in Raymondville. And my brother has a Mazda and BMW dealership in My dad started in the car business in the 60s. In like 1969, he started residential subdivisions. Could you, I guess, uh, describe a little bit more about your parents? You mentioned that they they owned car dealership and then your dad started up that uh, development company. But what exactly, what else did they do? I mean, what sort of... My father served as a city commissioner starting in 1975. He was elected as part of a slate, and it included Reuben Edelstein, who owned a a chain of furniture stores in the Valley, and my dad, who was a car dealer, and Justo Barrientes, who uh, is a restaurant owner, and included uh, Mr. Jack Moser, who owned a grocery store, and it included, who am I missing? Oh, Mr. Bobby Duffy, who was a bank president. So that was the slate that was elected in 1975. My dad's group stayed close all their lives. And they continued to meet for lunch once a month at Mr. Barrientes' restaurant. They had hired a new city manager, 
his name was Neil Heyman, and even the city secretary who was in her 90s sometimes would come to lunch, and the former city attorney would come. My dad died two years ago, and up until his death, the group still met at Mr. Barrientes' restaurant. Even though Mr. Moser and Mr. Edelstein had passed, the group still met. I don't know if they still meet now, but they kept meeting once a month for the rest of their lives. Wow. What's what's the name of the restaurant? The Oyster Bar. Did he continue, I mean, besides the lunch, did he continue to be politically involved, I guess, in Brownsville politics? He stayed involved in a, as a supporter of people that ran. He wasn't an active campaigner type person. My mother was good about uh, helping on phone banks. She was always help, trying to help people and would work on phone banks for people that she supported for office. She did it for a friend of ours, Tony Garza, was a, was running for county judge. I think she ran his phone bank for him. And when my husband ran for city commissioner, she ran his phone bank for him. And she used to do it for people that ran for the school board. So she, she liked doing that. She liked calling people and, and talking to them. And, of course, when you're talking about in the 70s and the 80s, Brownsville was a much smaller city. And... And my mother had worked at the credit bureau, which was the Equifax, the local Equifax back in the day. So my mother knew a lot of people because when you wanted to get a loan, you went to the local credit bureau to get your credit rating and what made you credit worthy. And so because of that, she knew a lot of people in town. As a matter of fact, because she worked at the credit bureau is how she met my dad. He, w- he was looking to get a bank loan and you had to go to the credit bureau to get a credit score, and that's how she she met him. In essence, she felt like she was calling her friends to talk to them about the people she was supporting. And later on, in 84, she ran for office to be a on the local college board. She ran to, for the Texas, to, to run for the Texas Southmost College Board of Trustees because she had a friend named Jean Eckhoff and Mrs. Eckhoff wanted to get more like-minded people who wanted some change at the local college board. So she recruited my mother and a man named Michael Putnett, and they ran against people that had been there a long time and were kind of entrenched on the board and didn't seem, weren't being innovative, let's call it, or were people didn't consider them being innovative. She ran with Mr. Putnett. And they won, and my mother stayed on the board for 22 years on the local college board after that. And she resigned so that they could appoint someone that she hoped would have a leg up because they would have been uh, had some experience the next time they ran. If, you know, they were doing this in the 70s and 80s, how, if you don't mind me asking, how old were you? No, oh, I was a sophomore in college when my father ran for office. So I wasn't involved. I wasn't involved in that. I was getting married. I helped when my mother was running for office. And she was running against someone very entrenched. And I remember counseling my brothers and sisters because I didn't know if she was going to win or not. I remember telling my brothers and sisters, no matter what, we're going to be cheerful. Because... 
win or lose, we're going to be cheerful. She ran, and if she loses, we're going to be happy. And if she wins, we're going to be happy. And we're not going to act like it's some big tragedy if she doesn't win. But she won. <laughs> yeah. When she, when your mother ran, what, what sort of, what was the feel of the political atmosphere there? Was there... Well, the irony is the uh, man that she ran against, his sister, and she had been close friends in high school. She had known him a long, long time. And he's a nice man. He came up to her one time, and he wasn't considered good-looking. And my mother uh, was overweight. And he came up to her and said, I just want you to know I'm going to run a clean campaign. And my mother sometimes can be sharp. And she said to him, what could you say dirty about me except I'm fat? And if you say I'm fat, I'm going to say you're ugly. Wow. And yeah, that wasn't very nice. But. She didn't respond well to him saying that he was going to keep it a clean campaign because in her estimation, there was nothing you could say about her that could be destructive or disparaging except her weight. There was strife afterwards because my mother had always run the offices for my dad. Even when she worked at the credit bureau and my dad started out owning a gasoline station, she did the books for him. So when she started out as a college trustee, she felt like they were their controls were not sufficient as far as credit card use and other things. And so they started initiating a lot of controls and for the office and setting a lot of board policies about what how money could be spent and what level had to be approved by the board and and they felt like After she'd been there a year, she they came to a conclusion that the board president was not being innovative enough and was not uh, changing the culture enough. And so they offered him to be president emeritus, and they were going to hire somebody else. And he didn't want to resign. And there was he was a um, he had a lot of people that were pop a lot of people influential people that supported him, and it became very controversial. People picketed and the board meetings. And I was some, uh, one guy actually spat at my mother. It was really distressing. Finally, he he was the ch- change occurred and and progress was made and and they kept ma- making changes and they hired Dr. Juliet Garcia, who was the first Hispanic college president, first Hispanic woman college president in the United States of any college or university she was the first they hired her and made changes and grew and then my mother through my own father's experience my dad had uh, gone off to work uh, to serve during the korean war and had come back and had done like odd jobs found whatever work he could and then started school under the gi bill and he had a lot of friends that were in the same boat working part-time and going to school and he finished at Texas Southmost College his associate's degree and then the only opportunity to get a bachelor's was in Edinburgh and back then there was no highway so you had to go military 
road, which was uh, 281, which is a two-lane road, and they would take it, and it would take an hour and a half to go from Brownsville to Edinburgh, and he would drive with three friends, and uh, he had the car, and they would each pay him a dollar for gasoline money, and they would drive up. They'd leave at six in the morning to get there to make an eight in time to make an eight o'clock class. They go to school from eight to twelve. Then they'd come home. My dad would have a quick lunch, and then he'd start working at two, and he worked to ten. And he'd get home around ten fifteen, have a quick dinner, study till midnight, go to sleep, wake up at six. And he kept it up for like two years, like a year and a half. And it's 1959, and my mother is pregnant, and my mother says we just can't keep up this, you know, this life that we're leaving. They decided they they had some savings, and they decided to buy a gasoline station, and that way my father would have. Back then, the gasoline stations were service stations, and you had you had repair services there, and it was full service, and People came and put the gasoline in your car and everything. But believe it or not, gasoline stations closed at 6. They opened at 7, but they closed at 6. So he would have a home life. He could be home by 6.05 or 6.10. And I remember as a small child, we would go. We would have dinner together because by this time I had two brothers. So this would be like after 1962. And my brothers would be crawling on the floor, and my sister, my little sister would be there, and I would be there. And they would go back and tally up the day's receipts and, and uh, do the, a little bookkeeping. And they'd take, we'd have dinner, we'd go back, go back into the office of the service station, and they'd do their tallying and whatever they needed to do for a half an hour, whatever, however long it took them, and then we would go back and be put to bed. But my mother always regretted that she had told my father she couldn't keep up with having two children and and it was just the schedule he was having there was no home life so she regretted that and my father w- would have been able to graduate but what had happened is that he was a chemistry major because his afternoon job was a working in a chemical at a uh, chemical assaying it was a lab and they did assaying of minerals and he was so he was studying to be a chemist and he discovered that all the chemistry labs in edinburgh were in the afternoon well he couldn't he couldn't stay for the afternoon labs because he had a job so he's asked them what could he switch his major to that he would lose the least number of hours and they said business. So he switched his major to business so that he wouldn't have to take afternoon labs. So that's what also delayed his graduation. He had to change majors because the labs were in the afternoon and he had an afternoon job. So in my mother's heart, she had always known that my father wasn't able to complete his education because of the distance it took to how cumbersome it was to take three hours out of your day to travel to get to school to get to the university for upper division courses. So she was determined and, and Pan Am had a small upper division here in Brownsville housed at Texas Southmost College. And it was 
only you could get a business degree and an education degree. Those were the two degree plans that you could get here in Brownsville. There, there were very narrow options unless you wanted to travel to Edinburgh, which in my mother's own experience was very hard on a family and costly in both time and money. Edinburgh is in talks with UT system to have UT come and make it UT Pan Am. And there is talk that the UT system will shut down this upper division in Brownsville. So my mother and her board decided that they were going to start their own talks with UT because they didn't want this upper division shut down. As a matter of fact, they wanted it expanded so that there would be a lot more options available to students in Cameron County and avoid and also avoid the time and money it costs to travel an hour. Or if you're from the island, it would be an hour and 45 minutes to get to school in Edinburgh. Mm -hmm. So they started talks. She started talks and she asked Senator Eddie Lucio Sr. to bring down the chancellor of the UT system. And his name is Dr. Hans Mark. And Dr. Hans Mark, you can look it up. He's very distinguished. And he, I think he was an assistant secretary of the army. I mean, he's, he had a lot of, I think he worked at NASA. He's very distinguished and very intellectual and very tall. And my mother is five, one in heels. And, uh, She's small, but energetic. And he came in and they had talks and uh, they were going to have this discussion about instead of UT closing this upper division thing, expanding it. And so she was talking to him and saying that how the need was now and they needed this, these opportunities for these students here locally now. And he started to tell her that it would be 20 or 30 and he didn't get to finish his sentence because she interrupted him. She goes, we cannot wait any longer. We need, the need is now, how about if we hire UT to come and we partner and we hire you to teach the upper division courses and we, we pay you to teach the upper division courses he was intrigued and promised to follow up and they did follow up and then formed a partnership that was the first in Texas. I think, I don't know if it was first in the nation, but I think it was the first in Texas where the local community college partnered with the university system, which was UT and hired the UT system to teach upper division courses. And once that started, the number of degree plans available really expanded. And during that plan, for instance, they introduced a physics department. That physics department, I believe, now with UTRGV, graduates either the most or the second most number of Hispanics physics majors in the nation. And it started with this program at UTB. And then they hired people and they had the astrophysics there. 
And I know people were questioning, well, why do we need astrophysics there in gravitational wave? And then when SpaceX was looking for a new place to launch from, they were really impressed that UT had this astrophysics department. And I, I think it was one of the points in Brownsville's favor that made SpaceX locate here is because these, major, these students are, uh, were here. These, these physics majors and astrophysics majors were here, located right at hand. And UT now has partnered with SpaceX, and they have a program called Stargate. We can just point back and say we needed this partnership. We needed more opportunities. We needed more degree plans, and they expanded it, and it included this. And because it included this, it made Brownsville more attractive to SpaceX, and now SpaceX is here. Basically, your mom brought UT, well, not brought, but she kind of like created the University of Texas. There's video of Dr. Mark, uh, Dr. Hans Mark, and he ended up just like Mr. Hernandez and Dr. Mark. She interrupted Dr. Mark. She's sharp with Mr. Hernandez, but because she's only doing something for what she believes is right, that no one ever holds it against her. So Dr. Mark ended up loving my mother. And when he turned 85, he invited my mother to his birthday party. And so, and so they formed a partnership. And the partnership was overseen by three members of the Texas Athletics Board of Trustees and three members of the Board of Regents of the UT system. The chancellors ended up being having to report to her on the progress of the partnership. And I don't know if you know, but U UT system regents, it's like one of the best appointments in the state. People really enjoy and are, are eager to be UT regents. It's, and usually it's big donors that get appointed. Although that's changing a little bit, but it used to be big donors. So it would be politically active supporters of the governor that would usually get appointed and people treat them very well and they get boxes at the UT games and they get to fly to every, every university to, for all the, they get treated well. It's a, it's a nice appointment and people really actively seek it. But when they come to the first meeting with my mother, my mother doesn't want them to think somehow that they are not equals on this board. And she's not going to allow them to think that her voice is not going to count. So my mother ends up saying to them, I want you to know I'm an elected official and you are appointed by one man. So on this board, I outrank you. Wow. The guts. <laughs> Yes, because she doesn't want them to think. Look, my like my voice is not good. Somehow, don't come here thinking you're all that because you're the UT Regent. Because on this board that governs this partnership, we're all equal. And as a matter of fact, I'm an elected official.
are these stories that your mom told you afterward or were oh, you there? Oh, yes. Oh, I, I grew up with, a, my mother is outspoken. There's no, I mean, she would tell the story and, and her board, when she talked to Hans Mark, and she would press him, let's work on this and get this done and everything. And they did it in a, in an unbelievably short amount of time because the UT system, no one ever moves fast enough for my mother. And so she would bug Dr. Mark. He was friends with Bobby Duffy, who had served on the city commission with my father and was also my parents' banker. And my mother and Bobby Duffy had gone to high school together. And Bobby Duffy said he he passed Spanish because my mother tutored him. So it's, you know, that kind of a small community. Well, Dr. Bobby Duffy had been on the development board for the business school at UT, and he knew Dr. Mark. And Bobby Duffy had also been president of the Texas Bankers Association. So he was a prominent person in the state, and he knew Dr. Mark. And so Dr. Mark tells this story. I don't know what they were celebrating, but I went to the I went to the event, and they have it on videotape somewhere. And he, Dr. Mark, tells this story because my mother didn't know it. Dr. Mark calls Bobby Duffy and says, "What do I do to get Mary Rose? You know Mary Rose Cardenas?" And he says, "Yes, I know her very well." And he says, "Well, what do I do to get her off my back?" And Bobby Duffy told Hans Mark, "You know what, Hans? If you want Mary Rose to get off her." your back my best advice is to do what she says so that's another story the little ripple effect the little ripple effect of talking to mark dr mark about a partnership ends up years and years later spacex comes because of the students that will graduate from that partnership helping someone with spanish in high school years and years and years later lets that person tell the, the uh, chancellor of the UT system, just do what she says. Wow. What was she? I'm, I'm curious. Was your mom the same way at home? Uh, <laughs> yes. yes. My mother is uh, very driven. So she tells stories like this, like, uh, you'll never be as smart as I am because you will never have lived as long as I have. <laughs> yes. She has these little golden nuggets. She's uh, a force. You mentioned that you had left to work at the Color Times in Corpus Christi. Uh huh. Yes, I went to UT undergraduate, and I went to Columbia for graduate school. Okay, so when you left, did any of your mom's, I guess, golden nuggets, or you know, your parents, did any of their wisdom? Did you take that with you when you left the valley? I'll t- I'll tell you a story. I went to Columbia, and I had an old school professor who was really mean. And in fact, when I was going there, I had written to a previous UT graduate who is now a professor at UT Austin, but she was there and I asked her, I get asked her for recommendations and she gave me the name of this professor who was considered the best professor, but she hadn't taken him, but everyone loved his course. So I signed up for his course. I had to apply to get in, and it was very. And he, you were on a wait list, and I got in, and he was mean, really mean, like awful. I had never been treated like that by a professor or a teacher ever, not in K through twelve, not in college, 
when I came home at Christmas and I told my parents how he was and my, and I was like, I, you know, I just, I didn't have to take him the next semester, but he really had soured me on maybe I wasn't, maybe I, I didn't really want to finish. I mean, that's how he had affected me. I was thinking that I, and I've, I've never been a quitter and I'd always done well in school and, my mother and father were both, no, you need to go back. You're not going to deal with him anymore. And it doesn't matter what he says. You know, you're better than what he says and everything. So I went back and I didn't have to take him. And when graduation came around, my parents and my friend's parents were hanging around and they meet Professor Mencher. Mrs. Williams comes to grab my father and says, Mr. Cardenas, Mr. Cardenas, you need to come and get your wife. I think she's going to punch Professor Mencher, Uh-oh. which she wasn't. She wasn't. But she told him, she told him in very stark terms that what he had done to me was not right. And that's not the way you treat students and everything. And then at the end, she told him this because he was very short. He was a very, very short man. And believe it or not, I mean, he, he and my mother were about the same height. And he was slim, but he was a slim man. And my mother told him, I believe, Professor Mencher, if you had known my size and I had known yours, my daughter would have had a completely different experience in your class. Sassy. Very sassy. <laughs> oh, yes. And Mrs. Williams thought my mother was going to punch him, but she wasn't. But, he, but she did make her feelings known to him. Is there a particular time or moment where you realize that, whoa, my mom is a very big deal? My parents were both really friendly and nice to people. And remember, they grew up when Brownsville was very small. My father was born in 30 and my mother was born in 31. Brownsville was very small. People knew each other. And as Brownsville grew, and my mother was in the credit bureau, she knew, like, where your grandparents lived. She knew where your parents lived. She knew who your brothers and sisters were. My father grew up in Matamos until the age of 11, and then he came to live in the United States when he was 11 because it's a long story, but his mother died when he was 18 months old. In 1932, there was no idea of a single father raising his child alone. So my grandfather gave his son to his in-laws to raise. And then my father's grandmother dies, then the grandfather dies, then the spinster aunt dies. And by the time he's 11, he's brought over to the United States to live with an aunt who has an aunt. And so my father's been an only child this whole time. And then he's sent to live with an aunt that is a widow with three girls who marries a widower with four sons and my father comes to be child number eight and then they have a child together so it's nine in in the family and it's a small house and so i mean it's a big adjustment but my father has learned to make adjustments in his life because he's had so many people die on him but it's um it's a big adjustment, and then he goes to live with an aunt that only ha- has two children. And uh, But he came over, and they put him in first grade because there was no such thing as 
bilingual education. So they put him in first grade because he didn't speak a word of English. But he was very good in math, and so the next year they put him in fourth grade. But then they never jumped him again. They never get so he was a seventeen-year-old freshman in high school, wow. and he didn't he didn't like it. He hated being so far behind. So he ends up joining to go to Vietnam uh, to go to Korea, and uh, gets his GED because he quits school and gets his GED. And then when he comes back, he starts college. Do you think that your mom's, her her determination and your dad's willingness to do better, do you think that has really affected you? I think all of us believe in community service and all of us have our different charitable endeavors. And we, we really do work to help our community uh one of my brothers was a volunteer basketball coach at his he went to catholic high school and he was a volunteer catholic uh volunteer basketball coach for like 17 years and then he went and then they decided to hire a professional a real coach and so then he went to be a volunteer coach at marine military academy and he does help people he does work for people he believes in in getting elected and then my other brother is involved with organizations like Hook for Life, which teach children about being outdoors and learning to love being outdoors by fishing. And he helped organize for years charity golf tournaments for his for his high school, the same Catholic high school. My other sis, sister has served on just so many different boards also to help the community and I have too. I've sat on many different boards to help our community. I remember even as a very young child, my mother served as um, the local school district would give English classes, free English classes in the evening. And my mother served as a volunteer as a, to teach, teach adults English. This is, I mean, this was probably 1962, and I remember my mother doing that. Very, well, I was very, very young, and I remember my mother leaving, and it would be twice a week in the evening, and she would go to teach English at the local elementary school to parents who didn't speak English. And my father was in Kiwanis when I was little, and I remember that he would have to go, and I forget what the Kiwanis would do, but I remember him having to leave and go be a volunteer for the Kiwanis. Yes, I remember my parents volunteering, and I think it's affected all their children. We're all, we all volunteer. My, my sister in Austin. I have a sister that's an attorney in Austin, and she's, she volunteers for different things. She's in a, a group that brings children to the symphony in Austin so that they get exposed to culture and sponsors. Uh, elementary school children from around the Austin area to come listen to the symphony and they and they they have fundraisers and pay for it so all the children can learn about the symphony enjoy the symphony we all do what we can to help and do you think that's also something that is preserving the family legacy in a way my mother has always said, look, we eat from this community. So if we want to continue eating, 
we need to make sure that this community thrives and progresses. Did your dad, when he was a city commissioner, were there any big changes during his time? I think they started the Community Development Corporation. The only thing I can tell you that I remember well is Community Development Corporation, which was originally designed to get rid of people having outhouses within the city. So it was started as a nonprofit, and I guess there were government grants that would go into homes and connect them to the city sewer system, get rid of the outhouses and build a bathroom. And so that, that was the first thing that the community development corporation did. Then it became about housing and improving the housing stock in Brownsville and building affordable housing for the community. But the first order of business was removing outhouses throughout the city. You mentioned that when your parents were growing up, Brownsville was like a really small town. Um, it was a small town. And uh, and my mother's family, for instance, her father became ill when she was a teenager, really ill and couldn't work anymore. And they had to go live in a housing project for a time when, when her father became ill. And then both she and her brother started working to help sustain the family when they were still teenagers. You know, you saying that and putting everything together, connecting the dots, it sounds like your parents really has, because I believe Brownsville now is twice the size of McAllen population-wise and city limits, I believe. So do you think that their involvement in the community has really made Brownsville for the better? Oh, definitely. Yeah, it's a giant quilt. I would definitely say my parents helped weave that quilt and and make it a better quilt. And I would say my husband did too. And I would say my father-in-law did too. I mean, definitely. They worked to help their community. They all did. Uh, You had mentioned that your husband and his father were both part of the Brownsville City Commission, well, right? My Yes, my father-in-law was a city commissioner and a mayor in the early 60s. And my husband was a city commissioner, let's see, starting in 85. And then he was elected to two other terms. But they were, yeah, he was elected to two other terms. One of them was non-consecutive. So then, real question is, when are you running for city commissioner? I will tell you that I believe my efforts are better spent in my the the activities I'm involved in now. I'm a, I'm chairman of the board of the Idea Public Schools, which is a public school system that started in the Rio Grande Valley that has 50,000 students, but it's a charter school organization, and it has charter schools in the Rio Grande Valley, San Antonio, Austin, and El Paso, and this and Baton Rouge. And this year we'll be opening schools in Fort Worth, 
and New Orleans. And in 2022, we'll open up schools in Florida and Cincinnati. And it is particularly geared towards making sure that children from low socioeconomic households get through high school and into college and finish college. I'm on another board that is looking to make data available to junior colleges and colleges to avoid remediation of students. If they've made this, we'll give you the data that will show, depending on what their high school curriculum is, no matter if you have a placement test that says they need remediation, their high school grade point average is a greater indicator of success in, in uh, college than any placement test because there are just some people that can't don't do well in placement tests. And I'm on Driscoll Children's Hospital Board, which is about helping children to have good health. And so that's based in Corpus Christi, but we have clinics both in Brownsville, Harlingen, and McAllen. My father started a hospital years ago, a nonprofit hospital with some other friends and they tried to make a go of it because our, we had one hospital and it was run by nuns and the nuns were selling it. And now we were going to have a corporate hospital. And back then in the seventies, there was no law that required the hospitals to take care of people that walked in the door. So people were afraid that they'd get refused by a for-profit hospital. So my father and some friends started a nonprofit hospital and they ran it for like 10 years, and they never could make a profit because they had so many people with no insurance and no way to pay. So the paying customers weren't enough to pay for the non-paying customers, so they sold it. And they, uh, with the money from that sale, they formed a foundation called the Brownsville Foundation for Health and Education. And my dad started that, and he served on it until his death. He would say, you know, if you have your health and you have a good education, then it's all up to you after that. Very powerful. And I serve on that board now. I just got appointed last year. So we give grants to nonprofits that are working for health and education in Brownsville. So definitely no time to be a city commissioner. <laughs> Not if I want to work, too. <laughs> That's true, yes. I've only been to Brownsville a couple of times and. I'm always amazed about all the buildings there and, you know, there's a, that area, I don't remember what it's called, but it used to be, there's an area where they said they were going to build like something called Wonder, Fun. Amigo Land. Amigo Land, that's what it was. Um, Yeah. And all this other stuff. But besides that, just, just going to Brownsville and seeing all the old buildings there is really nice. There's a, an architectural historian at he teaches at both Rice and University of Houston, and his name is Stephen Fox, and he says Brownsville has the greatest collection of Civil War area buildings still intact in the state mm-hmm. because Texas Southmost College has. Well, their main building is the hospital built for the Fort Brown. And the town itself just got, the downtown historic district just got national uh, historic recognition. Yeah, it's a very beautiful downtown. 
my husband serves on, uh, he's chairman of the board of the local historic museum. They have, the old city hall is now the museum runs that and they have the Stillman house and they have the historic Browns of the museum. And then they have a lonesome building. So they have a, a lot of buildings to manage. Well, we love historic buildings over here at the museum. So I'm all for that. Yes. And I used to serve on the heritage council for the city of Brownsville for years. I served on that council about helping people save what they own. Yeah, you know, just preserving the history yes, and, yes. and presenting the history. Do you know about the Robert Runyon collection of photographs? I believe we have some of his photographs in our collection. I don't know how it happened, but when he died, somehow the collection went to UT. And UT, to their credit, put it online. A lot of the photographs are online. Mm-hmm. I don't think all of them, but a lot of them. But it is a shame that we didn't get to keep it here locally. Yeah, because I believe he took, was he, I know he took a lot of photos in Brownsville. And, and he was a mayor. I think he was a mayor of okay. Brownsville. The Museum of South Texas History is doing videos. And we're also, like I you know mentioned earlier, trying to preserve that history, even through a podcast and interviewing people and trying to tell stories that normally other people wouldn't know about. I've been to the Stillman House. A lot of great overview of the region. But, you know, sometimes you want to hear those little stories about particular events or history of people and things like that. You know, I appreciate you coming on and doing this interview. Sure, Pamela. uh, Yes, I mean, we all play our part. In my parents' case, they... um, played a part in something that is, for instance, the foundation will go on and my father, my father's legacy will go on because he, he's the one that co-founded the hospital and then co-founded the foundation. So that legacy will go on. And, and then UT RGV and Brownsville will go on. And my mother was uh, instrumental in making sure it was established. And we're so fortunate because Students have the opportunity to go and finish their college education in their own community and not have to travel to get a degree, especially, I don't remember the number, but it's high, the number of, the percentage of students at UTRGV that work and go to school. I mean, I think it's over 70%. So you need to have it close at hand to make it convenient. And my mother and father knew that from their own experience. And I think a lot of people are very grateful for that. So thank you. When you have hardships in life, you work later in life to rectify them so that other people don't suffer those same hardships. That's a good thing, to take your experiences and and make it better for others. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And as I mentioned, people can stop by the Museum of South Texas History, learn a little bit more about their their heritage and the history of the region. And of course, thank you so much, Reba, for participating in this interview. Well, thank you, Pamela, for asking. No problem. And I hope to see you around. Yes, I look forward to meeting you. This episode was produced and edited by me, Pamela Morales. Song is Carpe Diem by Kevin McLeod license under Creative Commons. Follow us on Anchor to hear more about stories from the Rio Grande and send your questions through the Anchor app. 
You can also subscribe to this podcast through the Apple Podcasts app or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you for listening to Most History, Stories from the Rio Grande.